Recently, Pope Francis appeared on Italian TV, and the presenter said, it's difficult to imagine hell, to imagine a father who condemns for eternity. And Pope Francis replied, what I'm about to say is not a dogma of faith, but something I hold personally, which I like. I like to think hell is empty. It is a pleasure. I hope it is. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Now, despite what some folks might allege, Francis is not saying that there is no hell. Rather, that he likes to imagine it is empty. And there's nothing particularly wrong with this. We hold out hope for, for the souls of all the departed. But the Pope went on to say that he hopes that hell is empty. And why? Now, it seems that, that this answer is intended to mollify people who are repelled by the idea of divine justice. Then again, perhaps not. But if not, then why not simply answer with the teaching of the Catholic Church? In paragraph 1033, the Catechism says very clearly that hell is not a punishment inflicted by God, but rather the result of a person's free choice to reject his love and salvation. See, <clears throat> this official answer emphasizes the fact that God respects human freedom and therefore does not force anyone into a relationship with him. God does not condemn anyone to hell. On the contrary, hell is the consequence of the definitive rejection of God's grace and the refusal to repent of your sins. Now, what harm could it have done to anyone for Francis to state the teaching of the church unambiguously, thereby clearing up the confusion caused by this ugly caricature of God as an unforgiving father? It's inconceivable to me that the Pope in Rome should hedge on a question so integral to the salvation of souls. But he is the Pope, after all. And he might have said that the nature of hell is a state of eternal suffering and loss. As the catechism, uh, catechism puts it, the state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed. Now, the Catechism does use various biblical images and expressions to convey the, the, the seriousness and the permanence of hell, such as eternal punishment and the second death, and describes hell as a state of eternal fire. However, the Catechism also acknowledges that these descriptions of hell uh, from Scripture and the Church's tradition are, are symbolic, and metaphorical because they attempt to convey a reality that surpasses human understanding. So the primary focus is on the eternal separation from God, which is the eternal aspect of hell. And more to the point regarding the question put to the Pope, it's important to note that the church teaches that the existence of hell does not contradict God's infinite love and mercy. God desires the salvation of all people and offers his grace and forgiveness to everyone. However, he truly respects the awesome gift of free will. It is this God-given gift of human freedom that allows us to choose our eternal destiny. The Catechism affirms that God predestines no one to go to hell, and that the possibility of salvation remains open until the moment of death. But rather than express his hope that hell is empty, how much more pastoral, not to mention merciful, to explain that hell is a state of self-exclusion from communion with God, a state of eternal suffering and loss chosen by those who reject his love and refuse to repent. But that the good news is God's infinite love and mercy are always available to everyone, and the possibility of salvation remains for all until the very end of their life. That's the gospel. That's evangelization. And that's no nonsense.
Well, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. I was born and raised a, a nominal Protestant. But I was never really a, a committed Christian. Now, lots of folks in my life were surprised when I joined the church, and, and many people asked me why. Well, on the 14th of this month, a Catholic World Report published a review of a book by a pair of Protestant scholars called New Book Explains to Fail Why Protestants Convert to Catholicism. All right, that's the, that's the name of the article. Uh, in the foreword to the book, which is called Why Do Protestants Convert? by Brad Littlejohn and Chris Castaldo, the eminent Presbyterian scholar Carl Truman says that the authors, quote, offer thoughtful answers to anyone perplexed by the attractions of Rome to a generation of Protestant intellectuals, unquote. And that would include Dr. Scott Hahn, Francis Beckwith, Thomas Howard, Father Dwight Longenecker, Paul Figpen, and many others. And I suspect that as with previous converts, that they would all concur with G.K. Chesterton's opinion that Protestants convert to Catholicism for lots of reasons, but they all boil down to one, because it's true. But in the book, Little John and Castaldo speculate that it must be something else. And they offer several series, uh, theories. For example, how uh, they say it might be psychological. That is, that converts to Catholicism are actually projecting their own psychological problems onto their Protestant churches or upbringing. Or it may be a, quote, particular understanding of the sacraments and the binding authority of church tradition, which I think is the most credible motive they offer. I mean, the intellectual linchpin of my own conversion was precisely the apostolic succession. And number three, they argue that uh, modern conversionitis, as they call it, is a consequence of Protestant anti-intellectualism of the 20th century. In other words, fundamentalism and, and low church evangelicalism are to blame. But that hardly explains the defection of a, quote, generation of Protestant intellectuals, unquote, including the likes of former Presbyterian biblical scholar Scott Hahn or former Anglican priest Father Dwight Longenecker, who were certainly well-versed in the Reformation's intellectual tradition, such as it is. And another conjecture is the allegedly seductive lure of the inner ring, penetrating the shroud of secrecy and mystery that surrounds the hierarchies within the hierarchies of the Church of Rome. And once being in the know, able to look down their noses at the poor uh, benighted former co-religionists. Um, Casey Chalk quotes one of the most ridiculous claims of the authors, namely the desire for political influence. It says, if you want to be a Christian conservative with some kind of access to the levels of power, some kind of influence for helping keeping our country on track, Roman Catholicism promises your best chance of access to these coveted inner corridors. And Mr. Chalk says rightly that's patently false because there are twice as many Protestants as con in Congress as Catholics. And as a response to the Catholic claims regarding the objective authority of the magisterium, the authors turn to the current Pope. If there's one thing the pontificate of Francis has demonstrated, they say, it's the ambiguous nature of the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic magisterium. And further, they cite the infighting among traditionalists, conservative, and liberal Catholics as undermining Rome's, quote, claim to speak with the living, vo living voice of divine authority, unquote. Like Mr. Chalk says, I can appreciate at least this critique. He says, Francis's pontificate has undoubtedly been a controversial and perplexing one. But of course, a, a mediocre pope is not an argument against the authority of the church. Chalk says, infighting among the various Catholic camps, though, potentially obscuring magisterial authority to outsiders, hardly invalidates that authority. 
You know, one might alternatively ask, do Protestant debates over the Bible's meaning undermine the Bible's authority? You know, I would hasten to point out the existence of, of various camps within the Catholic Church is hardly analogous <clears throat> to the 40,000-plus Protestant communities, all of whom claim the Bible is their authority, but many of whom hold wildly divergent, even contradictory doctrines. People in glass houses, as they say. Now, they try and head off the obvious objection to Sola Scriptura by suggesting that magisterial authority only compounds the issue. They say, if 66 books of divinely inspired text are susceptible to many different interpretations, why would adding 666 divinely inspired bulls, encyclicals, or canons solve the problem? This is both a straw man and an intentional insult. I mean, 666, indeed. Yeah, we get it. The Pope is the Antichrist, and the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon, blah, blah, blah. But beyond the fact that there are <laughs> 73 books in the biblical canon, not 66, the obvious problem with this ham-fisted anti-Catholicism is that the Church does not teach, nor has she ever taught, that magisterial teaching is divinely inspired. Now, there's plenty more where this came from, but but it's all the same tired old nonsense that Catholic apologists have refuted a thousand times. Now, the real issue with these Protestants trying to explain why so many of their co-religionists have become Catholics is that the authors either don't know what the church teaches, or they do know and are purposely misrepresenting what the church teaches, and there is no longer any excuse for this. They talk about the inner ring of Catholicism as though it were an esoteric religion, but it's not. It is the most exoteric religion uh, in history. And today, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the documents of the Ecumenical Councils, the Catholic translations of Scripture, the Holy Mass, the, the Liturgy of the Hours, it's all available online for free. Therefore, there's no question of invincible ignorance on the part of Protestant intellectuals who would undertake to study the question honestly. And my question is, why would they consider either their culpable ignorance or worse, their outright duplicity, to be morally acceptable? Of course, the, our separated brethren are not known for their deep understanding of moral theology. Uh, this, I think, is the natural consequence of Luther's doctrine of the assurance of salvation. I mean, if the authors truly accept his doctrine of once saved, always saved, to the point that they're absolutely cocksure of their own salvation, Regardless of the impiety, irreverence, or immorality of their own behavior, I suspect they may have unwittingly put their finger on one of the real reasons why Protestants convert. Achak suggested that if the authors of this book would like to understand why Protestants convert to Catholicism, they would do well to study the motives of credibility that have served as impetus for the conversion of so many. And what are motives of credibility? Catechism of the Catholic Church says the concept of motives of credibility refers to the rational grounds or evidence that support the credibility and truthfulness of the Catholic faith. And these motives provide reasonable justifications for believing in the message of the gospel and accepting the teaching of the Church. Now, we'll look at what these motives are and what the Catechism says about motiva credibilitatis and uh, motives of credibility for the, that hell's not empty when we come back right after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, speaking about motives of credibility. Okay, what, what is that? Well, the Catechism uh, number 156 says, what moves us to believe is not the fact that revealed truths appear as true and intelligible in the light of our natural reason, although they do. We believe, it says, because of the authority of God himself who reveals them, who can neither deceive nor be deceived. However, so that the submission of our faith might nevertheless be in accordance with reason, it says, God willed that external proofs of his revelation should be joined with the internal helps of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the miracles of Christ and the saints, prophecies, the, the church's growth and holiness, her fruitfulness and stability, quote, are the most certain signs of divine revelation adopted to the intelligence of all. They are motives of credibility, motiva credibilitatis, which show that the ascent of faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. So what do we have here? Well, first, one of the primary motives of credibility is the witness of the apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ, that is, the witness of Scripture and tradition, which form one deposit of the Word of God. The Bible, inspired by God and the living tradition of the Church, are sources of revelation that testified to the truth of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Catechism says the Church holds firmly that the four Gospels, whose historicity she unhesitatingly affirms, faithfully hand on what Jesus, the Son of God, while he lived among men, really did and taught for their eternal salvation. The Apostles and the early disciples were eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and their testimony serves as a credible foundation for the Christian faith. Another motive of credibility is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in the person of Jesus Christ. Catechism affirms that the Church has always venerated the divine scriptures as she venerated the body of the Lord. The prophecies and types found in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, providing evidence of the divine plan and continuity between the Old and New Testaments. As St. Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. It's also translated as, the new is in the old contained, the old is in the new explained. Uh, the moral and spiritual transformation brought about by the gospel is another motive of credibility. The church's moral teachings, the, the witness of the saints and martyrs, the transformative power of the sacraments, all demonstrate the credibility of the faith by their ability to bring about positive change in individuals and in society. So the transformation of believers, right? The personal experiences and testimonies of countless individuals who have encountered Christ and been transformed by his grace can be seen as motives of credibility. Also the growth and holiness of the church, despite its human flaws, the Catholic church has endured and flourished for over 2000 years. Its saints, teachings, sacraments, impact on society, all provide further evidence of its divine origin, as do the many miracles performed by Christ and his saints. Miracles that continue to this day, I mean, such as the miraculous cures documented at Lourdes in France or Lac-Saint-Anne in Canada. In fact, these two motives are connected. St. Thomas Aquinas, writing from the perspective of medieval Christendom, answered those who doubt the credibility of miracles in this way. He said, It is a fact that the entire world worshipped idols and that the faith of Christ was persecuted, as the histories of the pagans also testify. But now all are turned to Christ, wise men and noble and rich, 
converted by the words of the poor and simple preachers of Christ. Now, this fact was either a miracle or it was not. If it is miraculous, you have what you asked for, a visible fact. If it is not, then there could not be a greater miracle than that the whole world should have been converted without miracles, and we need go no further. We are more certain, therefore, in believing the things of faith than those which can be seen, because God's knowledge never deceives us, but the visible sense of man is often in error. Furthermore, there's the intellectual coherence and reasonableness of Catholic doctrine, which also con uh, contributes to motives of credibility. Catechism affirms faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. The Church's teachings are rooted in both divine revelation and human reason, and they offer a comprehensive and coherent understanding of reality, addressing the deepest questions of human existence. So, the witness of Scripture and tradition, the historical evidence of Jesus, the miracles of the saints, the witnesses of the martyrs, the transformation of believers, the growth and holiness of the Church, these motives of credibility taken together provide a rational basis for believing in the truth of the Catholic faith. They offer reasonable grounds for accepting both the revelation of God and the teachings of the Catholic Church. Speaking of which, we started off today's program with the Pope's recent remarks about the, the modern hope that hell is empty of human souls. And we established the existence of hell as a doctrine of the faith. So we know that when a person leaves this life, he's in God's hands, who, according to Scripture, will judge everyone according to their deeds. That said, there's no official teaching about the identity of any of the individual souls who may be suffering eternal separation from God. But the witness of many saints and blesseds bear testimony to the presence of souls suffering eternally in hell. Our Lady in Fatima in the 20th century, uh, St. Faustina in the 19th century, medieval mystics like Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Ludvina, among others, all testified to the eternal torments of the damned in hell. Now, admittedly, even such saintly visions and locutions and private apparitions as these, which enjoy the Church's approval, are not de fide, I mean, that is, not necessary for salvation to believe in them. However, they provide abundant motives of credibility, that souls indeed have gone and continue to go into that fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that, I'm sorry to say, is no nonsense. All right, this Sunday's gospel uh, was for the third Sunday in Ordinary Time. It's taken from Mark chapter 1, 14 through 20. And as I mentioned uh, uh, last week, since we've gone through the ordinary, uh, extraordinary form lectionary uh, a number of times, and because year B is uh, predominantly the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is not uh, uh, particularly well re represented in the extraordinary form um, lectionary, we're going to use the ordinary form, the, the Novus Ordo lectionary, uh, in our reflections this year. And since we're on Mondays now, we're just going to start with the, the previous Sunday, just yesterday's Gospel, because it should serve. I mean, most of us don't go to daily Mass, although uh, you should be reading the readings anyway. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, that Sunday is, is, you know, it's the day of the Lord, and that gospel really should be kind of a watchword for the following week. So Mark 1, 14 through 20, and from the New Catholic Bible translation, which we'll talk a little bit about that later on. 
After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time of fulfillment has arrived and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As Jesus was walking along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they abandoned their nets and followed him. As he proceeded farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They also were in a boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired workers and followed him. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, this Gospel reading begins after John had been arrested. So Mark shows uh, that the beginning of the ministry of Jesus is under the sign of his forerunner's martyrdom. It's a simple chronological marker. It's, it's a sin, thinly veiled prefiguration of the suffering and death that await the Messiah. Mark says Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel, that is, the good news of God. These first words spoken by Jesus in Mark's gospel give the core of Jesus' teaching. The time of fulfillment has arrived and the kingdom of God is close at hand. So, repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel means good news. So the question is, what is God's good news? And precisely, the long-awaited Messiah has come to break the power of sin and usher in the kingdom of God, that is, his personal reign on earth. Well, quite naturally, uh, people had an idea of the Messiah as a glorious kingly figure. They were expecting a national hero, a political liberator, a successor of David come to restore their public worship and secure their independence from Rome, from the empire. The Christ, the anointed of God who would bring Israel to world domination. But, but that's not the good news at all. The reason why Jesus comes before the nation is quite different. He didn't come to save uh, Israel from political oppression. He came to save us all from the slavery to sin and death. And it's well to remember that in Jesus' day, two-thirds of the entire population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And most of the people who heard his message were oppressed and poor and without hope. For that matter, all were under the curse of original sin. And Jesus' words were good news because through his life, his teaching, his miracles, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins reconciliation with God, the hope of eternal life. And, and it's this last which is the most important, I think. You know, my own ancestors were a warlike race engaged in acts of piracy and conquest, especially known for raiding the British Isles, where they ultimately settled. But they were converted without violence, precisely because the gospel offered what their religion did not, hope. The virtue of hope is one of the three theological virtues, so-called because they have God as their object namely faith, hope, and charity, or love. The theological virtue of hope is infused by God into the soul at baptism and is the virtue that enables us to trust in God's promises and rely on his grace, even in the midst of difficulties and uncertainties. It is the confident expectation of eternal life and the fulfillment of God's promises. Catechism of the Catholic Church describes hope as follows, quote, hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness. Placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, 
but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So hope is rooted in faith and love, and it directs our focus towards the ultimate goal of our existence, which is union with God in eternal life. It enables us to persevere no matter what trials and challenges life throws at us, because God is faithful to his promises, and we know that he will provide us with the grace and strength we need. So hope is not mere optimism or wishful thinking, but a supernatural virtue that comes from God. It's a gift that allows us to see beyond the limitations of this world and to place our trust in God's providence and mercy. It gives us the confidence that God's love and grace are always available to us, regardless of our circumstances. The virtue of hope is infused in the soul at baptism, I said. In other words, it's a gift of divine grace. But God desires us to grow in the virtue. Hope is nurtured through prayer, the reading of scripture, the sacraments, and the fellowship of the church. And these spiritual practices help us to deepen our relationship with God and thereby increase our trust in Him and strengthen our hope in His promises. And that's no nonsense. Back with more right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about the theological virtue of hope. And I wanted to say that like faith and love, the virtue of hope has moral implications. It encourages us to live virtuously, to strive for holiness, to persevere in good works, because we know that our actions have eternal consequences. Hope helps us to resist despair and discouragement and the temptations of the world, and to remain steadfast in our commitment to follow Christ. In fact, the virtue of hope is exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ. He is the source of our hope because he conquered sin and death. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has opened the way to eternal life for all who believe in him. Hope is a gift from God that enables us to trust his promises, rely on his grace, and confidently anticipate eternal life. It sustains us in times of difficulty, inspires us to live virtuously, and directs our gaze towards the fulfillment of God's plan for us. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, in the gospel for this week, Jesus also says, repent, repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, to repent means more than being sorry for our sins. That's contrition. True repentance expresses a desire to change and to make things right. When we repent, we recognize that we've made mistakes, that we've sinned, and we feel sorry for our actions. But the word repent literally means to turn back. So repentance involves a change of heart and a desire to turn away from our sins and towards God. It means asking for forgiveness and being willing to change, uh, to be willing to change our behavior, to make amends. When we repent, we're asking God to help us become better and guide us on the right path. And we'll talk about what the Catechism has to say about repentance in more detail later. Suffice it to say for now that repentance is an important part of our relationship with God, as it helps us to grow closer to him and seek his mercy and forgiveness. Jesus says to repent and believe in the gospel. So the message of the gospel, what, what is that? It, well, it's the good news of salvation. 
It's the revelation of God's plan for you and me and all of humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the proclamation of God's love and mercy and invitation to enter into a personal relationship with him. It's about salvation. And if you're wondering salvation for what? It's sin and death and eternal separation from God, which is what we call hell. See, the Catechism teaches that the gospel message is centered on Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior of the world. Paragraph 1846 says, The gospel is the revelation in Jesus Christ of God's mercy to sinners. Through his life, his teaching, his miracles, his death on the cross and resurrection, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and the promise of eternal life. So the gospel proclaims that God became incarnate in Jesus Christ to redeem humanity from sin and to restore the relationship between God and man that was broken in the Garden of Eden. It reveals God's plan of salvation, which is accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ and participation in his saving work. The Catechism emphasizes that the message of the gospel is a call to conversion and to faith. Paragraph 1846. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. It's an allusion to St. Paul. It invites individuals to turn away from sin, believe in the gospel, to follow Jesus as his disciples. The gospel message calls for a transformation of heart and a commitment to live according to the teaching and commandments of Christ. Furthermore, the gospel message highlights the importance of love and service towards others. Jesus teaches his followers to love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves, right? This is the, the great commandments. So the gospel challenges us as individuals to imitate Christ's self-giving love, his compassion, and his mercy in our relationships with each other. Now, the Catechism affirms the gospel is not merely a set of moral teachings or a simple historical account, but a living and transformative encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. It says the first proclamation of the gospel, the good news, is summarized by St. Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In short, the gospel message is the proclamation of God's love, mercy, and salvation through Jesus Christ. It calls for faith, conversion, and discipleship. It is an invitation to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to experience his saving grace, and to become a part of his body the church. So Matthew, uh, or Mark rather, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, is all about how Jesus inaugurated his mission and chose his first disciples. And that mission is carried on today by the Catholic Church. And that includes you and me. Christ still calls us to be his ministers, uh, all of, you know, calls men to be his ministers, all of the apostles, but he calls us all to discipleship. And part of being a disciple is sharing the good news. And that's what the church calls evangelization. All right. I just want to stop and talk for a minute about that. Jesus says to the apostles, you are fishermen, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that's evangelization. It's, it's the proclamation and sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ to all people. But more than that, it's to, to share that good news with the aim of inviting them to enter into a personal relationship with him and become his disciples. Right, through baptism and the other sacraments, through entrance into the Catholic Church. It's the mission of the Church to spread the gospel and bring others into that encounter and, and to encourage them to follow Christ. Catechism defines 
evangelization as, quote, the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. It emphasizes that evangelization isn't limited to the work of ordained ministers or missionaries, but the responsibility of all the baptized. Evangelization involves both the proclamation of the gospel message and the witness of a transformed life. You know, think of that uh, famous quote that's prom pardon me, rendered lips. Think of the famous quote that's commonly attributed to Francis of Assisi. You know the one I'm talking about. Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Now, more recently, Pope St. Paul VI said something very similar in Evangelii Nutiandi, number 41. Modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it is because they are witnesses. So all our ultimate call as Catholic Christians is to live and teach and bring people to Christ through the example of our witness, right? through the witness of a holy life. The primary goal of the Catholic evangelist is to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ and help them grow in their relationship with him. See, it's, it's not simply about sharing information about <clears throat> sharing information, rather, but about inviting others to encounter the person of Jesus Christ and to experience his saving love and mercy. And that includes inviting them to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but to repent of their sins, to receive the sacraments of initiation, particularly baptism in the Eucharist. Remember in Acts chapter 8, where, where Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch, and he, and he uh, explains the prophecies of Isaiah, preaches the gospel to him, and they stop at an oasis, and, and the eunuch says, look, here is water. What is to prevent my being baptized? See, that's the response to the good news. You know, what Pope John Paul II called the new evangelization extends to nurturing and supporting the faith of those who have already accepted Christ. Right? It involves ongoing formation and catechesis and discipleship to help people understand uh, and, and deepen their understanding of the faith and to grow in holiness. And so methods of evangelization can vary, I mean, depending upon the context and the needs of the people being uh, evangelized, those that you're trying to reach. And so it can involve, involve personal conversations, preaching and teaching, like at Mass, uh, parish events, uh, media, social outreach, various forms of evangelist, evangelistic programs and initiatives. I would say that, uh, that the current... Uh, um, what are, what are they calling it? The, the Eucharistic uh, revival is essentially evangelistic in nature and, and is a good example of the new evangelization. They're trying to get Catholics. 70% uh, of church-going Catholics allegedly don't uh, believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They need to be evangelized. Now, um, the, the, the church encourages all of us to, to participate in, in the work of evangelization and recognizes that each one of us has a unique role to play. And that would include sharing your faith with family and friends, uh, you know, colleagues, to be a witness of Christian virtues and values in your daily life in the world, especially, and then actively participating in the mission and mission ministries of the church. Pope Francis, of course, is, is adamant that Catholics should not proselytize. And, and uh, surely evangelization is not about imposing uh, one's beliefs or forcing conversions. You know, that frankly, it goes without saying. Uh, what, event, what evangelization is about is inviting others to encounter the truth and the love of Christ, which respects the free will and dignity of each person, but at the same time seeks to engage in real dialogue. I mean, that, that's a much abused term, 
but a real dialogue is a conversation and which which is you know to answer questions to address doubts to respond to the needs and concerns of those being evangelized in other words what we know is know is the spiritual works of mercy including even admonish the sinner because ultimately evangelization is rooted in love and a desire to share the greatest gift that we have received the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ it's an expression of our love yours and mine for god first and for our neighbor as we seek to bring others into the church and so i mean what how do we proceed practically in other words how do catholics evangelize uh, onto that in just a moment i i wanted to take a, a just a minute here because i've been remiss uh in mentioning the upcoming spiritual warfare conference we have our usual uh outstanding lineup of speakers Jesse Romero is going to be our uh, our master of ceremonies. Father Ripperger uh, will be there. Um, the guys from Libra Cristo, Doctor uh, Dan Schneider and Kyle Clement will be speaking, um, and also uh, Bishop Strickland will be with us again this year, I believe. Uh, certainly scheduled to be. You know, there's a lot going on uh, in the church right now, but um, and in his uh, ministry particularly, but. Uh, the, the entire schedule, everything is up on vmpr.org. You can go and check that out. And you can register for the conference. Uh, and I suggest you do because it's filling up fast. Not much uh, space left, although there is uh, some space. We added some space. And uh, you can go right now to vmpr.org and register for the conference. Don't forget to order your T-shirt when you register. Okay. Back with more on evangelization when we return with No Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Going to talk about how Catholics evangelize. And you may have noted that uh, in the new year here, I'm making uh, more reference to the catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, I'm always a, a have always been a big advocate of uh, the classic catechisms, Baltimore Catechism, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, particularly, uh, which Cardinal Ratzinger said was the most important uh, catechism ever produced. And that was after uh, the, the new catechism of 1992. But the reason I've been uh, paying more attention to the catechism of the Catholic Church is to, to demonstrate that the, the teaching of the classic teaching that I have been doing, engaged in for 20 years now, is represented in the catechism of the Catholic Church. I mean, albeit sometimes not as directly, but often, uh, you know, with every bit as much... Um, uh, potency as the traditional formulations and i and i want to you know i'd say we're getting in a place you know things are, are getting so weird in the catholic church and a lot of people are are you know looking to jump ship i think it's important that we should realize that uh, while the catholic church you know may suffer from corruption it's not a corrupt institution all right what what uh pope benedict the 16th called the hermeneutic of continuity is not about justifying changes. It's about showing how things are the same. All right? And so that's what we're on about. And that's why, talking about how Catholics can evangelize in various ways, uh, and, and guided by the teaching of the Church, and motivated by the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, with that in mind, I actually uh, mined out 
nine proven methods and approaches that are used by Catholics to effectively evangelize from the catechism. All right, so number one is personal witness. Catholics are called to be witnesses of their faith through their words, action, and the examples of their lives that we talked about. By living out the gospel values, striving to be Christ-like, you can inspire others and encourage them to draw closer to God. That was the whole uh, point, the theme of Vatican II, is that universal call to holiness. That's our starting point. Uh, the second is the proclamation of the word. Catholics share the good news of Jesus Christ by proclaiming the gospel message, which we talked about in the last segment. Now, and as I said, that can be done through preaching, right? Uh, like, at, like at mass or teaching, like in RCIA or various formation programs, uh, these programs that you're listening to right now, uh, public speaking, all right? But for most of us, it means engaging in conversations about the faith. And that involves explaining the teachings of the church and helping others to understand the importance and the beauty of the Christian message. It's like what St. Peter said, always be ready to give an explanation to those who ask a reason for your hope, but do it with gentleness and respect, reverence. And number three is catechesis and formation. St. John Paul II said that catechesis is for all Catholics, young and old. In fact, in his um, apostolic letter, Novel Millennio Eniunti, as we enter the new millennium, he gave a, a list of seven points that, that should be practiced by Catholics in, in the new millennium. And one of those, I think the second or third, is to study scripture and the catechism, scripture and tradition. Because you know, uh, ongoing catechesis and faith formation deepen our own understanding of the faith, and we therefore become better equipped to share it with others. And that can involve participating in religious education programs and Bible studies, small faith-sharing groups, online classes. Uh, we've been talking about doing some online classes uh, at VMPR this year. And uh, I, in fact, I was talking with Terry Barber about it this morning. And, of course, and there are other forms of continuing formation. I would, I would uh, recommend to you, if you're interested in, in you know, some basic formation classes, that, uh, that you can go to... Uh, Oh, I, uh, now here, I it jumped out of my brain. It's an online Catholic school, right, uh, which is offers a bunch of free classes, and they're generally quite good. All right, uh, catechesis information. Number four is the sacramental life. Celebration of the sacraments, particularly the Holy Eucharist, powerful means of evangelization. Catholics can invite their non-Catholic friends to come to Holy Mass with them, encourage fallen away Catholic family and friends to return to participation in the sacraments, and experience the grace and presence of Christ in their lives once again. Number five is prayer and intercession. We talk about that all the time on these programs. It's important for us to recognize the power of prayer in evangelization. It's something that every Catholic, without exception, that includes you, can start doing right away. To pray and make sacrifices for those who do not have the faith. To pray for the conversion and spiritual growth of others. To pray uh, as well as... Uh, for the guidance and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your own efforts of evangelization. Number six is social outreach and service, right? Engaging in acts of charity as a way of expressing God's love and mercy to others by serving those in need. Um, and, and we can bear witness to the gospel values and invite others to encounter Christ through acts of compassion. Obviously, time-tested uh, way of sharing the gospel. In fact, uh, prior to the church instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ, they were philanthropists, but there were no charities, 
right? And that's something that helped transform the world. That's one of those motives of credibility we talked about earlier. Number seven is apologetics, right? The, the defense and explanation of the faith. Uh, through apologetics, you can provide reasoned explanations and responses to questions, doubts, and objections, especially about Catholic beliefs and practices. Number eight is media and technology. This is fairly new in terms of, you know, 2,000 years of evangelization. But when it comes to personal witness and catechesis and apologetics uh, and example, Catholics can and should make use of the various forms of media and technology that are available to us in order to reach a writer, to reach a wider audience with the message of the gospel. And social media was in its infancy in 1992, but today, you know, uh, it's probably the number one way that people get information through uh, social media platforms and podcasts like the ones you're listening to right now, websites, uh, YouTube, and other resources. So we can make use of that. And finally, number nine is evangelistic programs and events. Uh, Catholic parishes here in the Diocese of Orange just last year, they had a big event um, for evangelization. And churches offer um, programs and retreats and missions and, and smaller events all aimed at reaching out to those who may not be actively participating in their faith, not practicing, and even those who have never heard the gospel message. And of course, you can attend such functions, and one of the reasons to go to a function like that is to meet like-minded Catholics. And of course, you can invite friends and family to go with you. That's a kind of a subtle way to evangelize. You should come with me to this evangelization conference. <laughs> all right, um, closing up here. Last week, I read an article by Monsignor Charles Pope called A Concern for a Vague Translation in the Lectionary and a Missed Moment for Teaching. And it regards the previous Sunday's uh, lectionary readings, the, uh, the New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 6, which admonished us to, quote, avoid immorality. That's 1 Corinthians 6.18. Now, what's wrong with that? Should we not do good and avoid evil? Well, of course we should. The problem is that that's not exactly what the text really says. The New American Bible translation, according to Monsignor Pope, quote, hides the more specific meaning of the text, which is accurately and easily translated. He says, fundamentally, there are two problems with this translation. In the first place, the Greek porneia, which is a specific reference to sexual sin, is translated vaguely as immorality, which can mean practically any sin. But porneia is a specific word referring to sexual immorality. Hence, the lectionary translation is so vague, he says, as to be inaccurate. In the second place, he says, avoid, as in avoid immorality, is a profoundly weak, as a translation of feogete, which is a present active and imperative verb and means quite simply flee, or secondarily escape or shun. Now, Monsignor says that one might argue that to avoid captures the word shun, which is the third meaning, uh, but he says it does not, that shun is a strong word. Avoid, he says, in English, is exceedingly more vague. Avoid says, all things being equal, you ought to steer clear of this, if it's not too much trouble. Right? So in other words, uh, well, in his words, avoid is friendly advice. Shun indicates a strong detestation. But flee, which is the first meaning, is an unambiguous command of warning, one which calls for immediate action due to something that is more than a small threat. He said the Greek verb fuego, or feugo, I should say, is used 29 times in the New Testament. Uh, and he says, in no case is avoid the proper translation. And he offers several verses, uh, the first of which was 
the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. All right, you can see how a void doesn't work. Now, uh, not surprisingly, the old Douay Reims translation gets it right. Fly fornication. Every sin that a man doth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Okay, very accurate, but, you know, uh, very Elizabethan. And that's why when it comes to a modern trans English translation, I prefer the New Catholic Bible, which renders this, this verse correctly in modern English. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against his own body. See, that, that is a wonderful, formal, accurate translation, but it's in modern English. And here's the end. That, that's the, the New Catholic Bible is the version that I'm reading from on this program. When I, when I read the, the gospel passages from, from the lectionary, I'm using this translation. I, it's not approved for, for use in the liturgy uh, at this point, which uh, demands the New American Bible, although it's not really the New American Bible exactly. It's, part of it is from the 1991 translation, parts of the 19. 86 translation, part is from the 1970 translation, and part of it is uh, unique to the lectionary and doesn't exist in any uh, published translation of the New American Bible. But And I don't get a kickback from Catholic book publishing company, but if you're used to the New American Bible translation, which most of us are from the liturgy, but you want to avoid you know, inclusive language and these more dynamic, uh, you can say vague translations, uh, that is, if you want a readable modern English translation, you might consider the New Catholic Bible. And it's not perfect because no translation can ever be, but it's a really good alternative. Lastly, Monsignor says, 1 Corinthians 6.18 is a clarion call to chastity that is so necessary to hear in this sex-saturated culture. Sadly, our vague lectionary translation misses a teachable moment. This is surely something to bring to the attention of the bishops as a new lectionary is prepared. Rest assured, I will surely bring it to the attention of a few bishops I know. I pray that you might do the same. The fact that a corrected lectionary is being prepared is good news. And it also represents the legacy of Benedict XVI. And that's worth praying for. And that's no nonsense. All right. As usual, I want to say thank you so much for being with us on No Nonsense Catholic and invite you to come back next week and every week. I look forward to sharing with you on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Till next time, may God richly bless you and your family. And thanks for listening.